He was the last surviving apostle. Writing at the end of what could arguably be called the greatest century in all of human history. And what made it so occurred in that first third of the century, culminating in the final three and a half years of that first third. That momentous time had been more than 60 years earlier. A person unlike any other human before or since stepped onto the stage of history and changed it forever. In fact, all of human history had been waiting for this person to come. You could well summarize the Old Testament with the words, He's coming, and the New Testament with the words, He's here. And the Apostle John knew this individual face to face, and it changed him forever. It changed not just him, it changed his other friends that were part of that select band of men, Peter and Andrew, James, his brother, Nathaniel, Philip, Thomas, and more, many more. People like the woman at the well really an outsider, one whose life was checkered with failures and sin, and yet she found the Messiah, met him face to face, and then introduced her whole town of Sychar to him. Jesus moved throughout Galilee. Jesus rocked Jerusalem. Jesus was hated by those you would think would have received him, crucified, risen again, and in the presence of 500 witnesses, ascended to heaven with the promise to come back. Not many days after that, some 3,000 people began to follow him, the preaching of Peter. Not long after that, another 5,000, it grew by leaps and bounds, it spread to Samaria, It went to Ethiopia. It went to Antioch of Syria. It spread throughout Asia, modern-day Turkey. It crossed over into Europe, in Greece, Philippi and Thessalonica in the north, Athens, Corinth in the south, and it finally made its way to the capital of the empire, Rome itself. And today, we sit and what Christ called in his day the uttermost parts of the earth. And we bow the knee and worship him as God and Savior and King. Shortly before Christmas, we looked at the opening words of John's gospel, the prologue. And today we begin with the climax of that prologue in verse 14. Of John chapter 1, 
The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that is John the Baptist, bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the testimony of John. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I have to confess, as I read these opening verses, my main qualm is how in the world do you do them justice? But we're going to make an effort as we plunge into what is here and what is revealed here. In verses 14 and 15, we see the incarnation, God in the flesh, observed. And we capture it in the words, John captures it in the words, we have seen His glory. We have seen His glory. In verses 16 through 18, we see grace received. John says it this way, from His fullness we have all received. And then in verses 19 through 23, John the Baptist, testimony given, and he's asked who he actually is. He says, I am a voice. I am a voice in the wilderness saying, prepare for the Lord. So consider with me verses 14 and 15, incarnation observed, centered on this idea, we have seen His glory. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John doesn't even use Jesus' name at the beginning. He just calls Him the Word. And you know from those opening verses that we looked at the Sunday before Christmas, this is the way John began. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about writing those words at the end of the first century with all that had happened. To the Greeks, the word, the logos, was the foundational principle of reason and order. And to the Jews, the logos was the personal revelation from God. Words communicate meaning to those who understand the language, and Jesus communicated God to us. 
He made God, who is spirit, knowable by revealing God as man. Hebrews begins with the same thought long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. His beginning is almost identical to John's. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is the word. This is Jesus. He became flesh. God is spirit. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh, fully human, while remaining fully God, and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent among us. It reminds us of those wilderness wandering years when the Shekinah glory of God filled the tabernacle in the wilderness, and, and Israel knew that God was with them in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by night. He led them. He protected them. And in similar in similar fashion, God in human flesh tabernacled with His people in those years of Christ's ministry. John says, we have seen His glory. We have closely observed His shining splendor. It wasn't just a flash in the pan. It wasn't just um, someone whose star rises briefly and he's soon forgotten. No, John, John lived alongside of Jesus for three and a half years. He's probably in his late teens or, or early 20s when he did so, and he, he got to watch Jesus in all the mundane, all the mundane cadence of life, all the pressures, all the opposition, all the miracles, all the sermons, all the loving touch of those who had been forgotten and had no hope. Throughout his three and a half years of earthly ministry, John and the other disciples observed the glory of the deity of Jesus, manifest in his teaching, in his miracles, and in his sinless life. But it's very possible that John is thinking particularly of that time when with Peter and James, he himself observed on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' deity broke through the veil of his humanity in shining splendor, bright as light, as lightning, and Jesus talked with Moses and Elijah about his exodus from the earth. You remember that it was such a, a stunning moment that, that Peter didn't know what to say, and he suggested they build three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You know, he tabernacled with us and kind of celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's start the kingdom now. But God the Father interrupted. We're told in Matthew 17, 5, he, Peter, was still speaking. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased Listen to him. Peter, stop talking and listen to my son. We closely observed his glory, the glory as of the only son 
from the Father, the monogonese, the one of a kind, the unique, the absolutely unique Son from the Father. According to John 1.12, we are given the right to become children of God if we receive Him instead of rejecting Jesus, as many have. But Jesus is one of a kind in terms of being the eternal Son of God. And what was the character of that glory? What was it about this shining that came from Jesus that marked Him as God in the flesh? I mean, the the shining out of deity was not actually a surprise to the apostles. It was confirmation of what they knew about this human who is also God, God in the flesh. John says he was full of grace and truth. He was completely good. He displayed favor to human beings that they they didn't deserve at all. God is astonishingly kind. He is full of grace and steadfast love, and He is full of truth. He's completely reliable. He's reality you can bank on, completely trustworthy. The the apostles would give their very lives for this Jesus long after He had ascended to heaven. Colossians 1.19, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus displayed a fullness of these divine qualities not just a reflection of them. I mean, you can find people that show grace. They're gracious people. You can find people that, that generally you can count on, but, but nobody as gracious as Jesus, nobody as truthful and reliable as Jesus except God himself because he is God himself. This summary description that John gives seems to be rooted in one of the, the earliest self-revelations of God to man. In Exodus 34, 5 and 6, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that is Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. In other words, his revealed character, how he wants to be known, his reputation. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, all that's grace and faithfulness. That's truth. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, through personal relationship with Him, knowing Him face to face. So John 1.15 goes on to say, John bore witness about Him. In other words, this is eyewitness testimony. The Bible is essentially a book of firsthand testimony to what God said and what God did. You could sum up the whole Bible that way. That's why we pay attention to it. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, if Jesus were just a man, even a good man, his existence would be marked, would have begun with his physical birth. And John the Baptist 
would have existed before Jesus did because John was born six months earlier. So what is John talking about, John the Baptist? Well, Jesus has supreme authority because he existed long before John did. Jesus is eternal. John the Baptist was born roughly six months before Jesus was born to Mary, but that was not the beginning of Jesus' existence. He existed as God the Son from eternity past. That's why John will say later in this chapter, verse 27, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I mean, I don't, I don't have a right to even be in his presence. Now, none of us have a right to be in God's presence, do we? It's only by the grace of God manifest in the face of Jesus that we come into his presence at all. So if you want to know God, you must look into the face of Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. There's no getting around it. There is no other God but the God that Jesus revealed to us as God in the flesh. So these questions, in what ways do your ideas of what God is like match or contradict the eyewitness testimony to the character, words, and deeds of Jesus. Sometimes we get our notions of what God is like from all kinds of places. A lot of people, you know, they say we get our notion of what God is like from what our dad was like. That's great if you have a really a super dad. And a lot of you, a lot of us were blessed with the super dad, but, but many were not. Many would say, well, I learned what being a jerk looks like from watching my dad. In fact, my own father said, I, I decided to be exactly opposite of what my dad was in order to be a godly man. So if you're just getting your notions of what God is like from that, then you're not going to get a, a fair picture of what God is like. Or maybe your notion of what God is like is, is certain Christians that you've met. Maybe it's just your idea of what God is like. I mean, how many conversations have I had with people who say, well, I think God is like this. Well, who cares what you think God is like? Like, you didn't create God. That's like picking anybody in the world and say, well, I think, you know, David's like this, or Susan's like this, or Jim is like this. Well, do you know David or Susan or Jim? If you don't, what are you talking about? Who is God actually like? Well, God is actually like God, and Jesus is actually God, and he came in human flesh so that we could know God. So if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know his character, if you want to know what he thought of people and how he treated them, if you want to know uh, how he approached the scriptures, if you want to know how he approached life itself, then, and, that, and, and understand God, then you've got to look at Jesus. And if you don't like what's there, then you don't like God. In what ways does your practice of religion then leave Jesus out because there's a lot of religion that does. In fact, ironically, much that calls itself Christianity leaves Christ out. I don't know what you've got, what, what you call that, eanity or something? It, 
but, but you can go through many a service and talk to people that are part of congregations and never hear them talk about Jesus. And yet they'll say they're Christian. And maybe that's you. I mean, maybe Jesus really is far from your mind and you're living out your life. So what patterns of life can you set that will help you keep your focus on Jesus in how you think and in what you do? Because if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of God, then you've got to look at Jesus and he has to take up how you think and what you do. Well, and that's what John's going to talk about. He's going to talk not just about who Jesus was, but about the effect of Jesus on his life. He says, secondly, in verses 16 through 18, we see grace received from his fullness we have all received. Verse 16, for, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We cannot become God. That's not what John means when he says we've received his fullness. But Jesus came to let us experience his divine fullness of grace and truth that mark God's intrinsic character. We, we become, as Peter put it, partakers of the divine nature. The disciples were not just eyewitnesses of Jesus' powerful life. They were radically changed by it, as everyone who has ever come to know Jesus has been transformed. Jesus gave them life from God through the new birth, and God's life force flooded into their lives, changed who they are from the inside out. That that's what makes a genuine Christian. That's what makes a genuine follower of Jesus. They are those who, in the words of verse 13 of this chapter, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God gives birth to his children. He gives life to his children, and it changes them forever. Those who receive Jesus for who he really is, rather than rejecting him, were given not only the rights and privileges of being children of God, but were actually born again with his life in them. This is why someone who claims to know Jesus cannot remain the same. It's impossible. It's, it's not about just turning over a new leaf. It's not just about joining a church. It's not about checking off your list. It's not about you being better than other people. It's about God's life in you changing who you are all the way down to how you think and what you love, what you live for. This is why people change when they trust in Jesus. It's, it's not so much the power of their faith, it's the power of the person they're putting faith in. And he changes them. And John describes it this way, grace upon grace. Like wave after wave of grace, of favor we don't deserve from God through Jesus. Not just at the beginning when they believe and they're all excited about it, but ongoing. And that's what accounts for a believer's growth in the Lord. That's what accounted for the development we see in the followers of Jesus in the first century. That's what accounted for it taking the world by storm. That's what guarantees 
that these believers will make it all the way home. God keeps on treating us far better than we deserve. It's not like this, well, my life changed when I trusted in Jesus, and from there on out, I've been working hard to follow him, and that's why I'm where I am. No. You may have been working hard, and you may have been following him, but the reason you've survived it all to this point is because of his grace upon grace. God keeps treating you with the love he treated you with when he first called your name. When you first, it dawned on you how much he loves you and he made you his own. The law was given by God through Moses. Moses was not the source. And the law was a good thing. It was perfect. But the law couldn't save us. Its function was to demonstrate how badly we need a Savior. Its function was to lead us to Jesus. Well, grace and truth This grace and truth qualities already identified with the shining splendor of God's character came through Jesus Christ. So Moses received the law from God. The law was given by God through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, directly from him as the God-man. Moses talked with God face to face, but that means he talked to him personally. That's a Hebrew way of talking about being in the presence of someone. Not that he gazed directly on God and all his deity. Only members of the Godhead could do that. God the Son, who is eternally at the Father's side, has made God known. God the Son has gazed fully upon God, has known him from eternity past as a member of the Godhead, and he has made God known. He has exegeted him. He has drawn out who he is. He's explained him. He's interpreted him so that ordinary people like us could understand who God really is and what he's really like. On many occasions, Jesus himself taught this truth. And for instance, consider his words to his disciples in the upper room on the night that he was to be betrayed and tried and the next day crucified. He says to them, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If You had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, he's still not quite getting it. Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. People who have a direct encounter with God cannot remain the same people they once were. I mean, how could they? Other human beings mark us. You know, you can tell who your kids are hanging out when they start picking up phrases you haven't heard them use before, right? 
um, you, you see the influence of human beings and one another. Well, how much more the influence if God himself is the one that you're spending time with? Jesus changed John. Jesus changed the disciples. Jesus has changed every person who is to come to know him through the testimony of the apostles. So what are some ways God has changed you through your relationship with Jesus? I mean, what's different? And what examples of God's repeated unmerited goodness and kindness, that's grace, toward you can you recall? Like, could you say with John, you know, my life story is like grace upon grace, wave after wave. You know, God brought me to himself, and actually before that, he was working to orchestrate everything, and, and look at how he worked here, and look at how he worked here, and look at how he supported my life here, and look at how he changed my thinking there. And then this question ongoing, how are you maintaining closeness to Christ so that his grace and truth shape your life? Because remember, it was from his fullness that we all received. And it's receiving that fullness that makes the change. It's not just your high discipline. It's not just your musings. It is your relationship to Jesus. Thirdly, we see testimony given in this passage. I am a voice. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. Remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a long-established title from the Old Testament, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the coming Savior King. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, the Jews here, that term would refer to the Jewish leadership, which centered in the Sanhedrin, 70 elders who governed Israel, along with the high priest at their head. And that suggested in that this is a delegation that was sent from Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites were the guardians of temple worship. At that time, the temple worship... And the priesthood was dominated by the sect called the Sadducees, the more liberal wing of Jewish, Jewish leadership. They didn't believe in miracles or angels or literal resurrection of the dead. Verse 24 is going to disclose to us that the ones who sent these priests and Levites were, however, of the sect of the Pharisees. So this is a concerted effort from the Jewish leadership. The Pharisees were the conservative group who who did believe in these scriptural doctrines, but as their name conveys, separatists, their focus was on keeping separate from the prevailing Greek and Roman culture of the times in order to preserve Jewish culture and ways. 
Their holiness was rooted in how separate they could be from the culture and trends of the time, rather than how close they could actually be to God. With vast throngs flocking to the Jordan to hear John the Baptist, who proclaimed repentance to prepare for the coming of the kingdom of God, this preacher in the wilderness, and he was odd, he ate oddly, he dressed oddly, he, he was not in the acceptable group. This preacher in the wilderness had to be vetted by these guardians of the Jewish nation and religion. He was not from their schools. He didn't teach in a synagogue. He preached in the open air. His lifestyle was not the lifestyle of the religious leaders of the day. But on him was great power because he was anointed with the Spirit of God, filled with him. Their questions to John reveal their awareness of Old Testament prophecy and that John is no ordinary man. Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king whose coming would free Israel from her oppressors and establish a kingdom over all the earth? I mean, think about if they're going from what they're seeing in John and they're asking that question, think, think about how, how amazing, how extraordinary this prophet is. He says, no. Well, are you Elijah? They're thinking of when Malachi predicted this Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord. And are you the prophet like Moses that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18 would arise from Israel and to whom the people would listen better than they listened to Moses on Sinai? The ministry of John is so extraordinary that, that people are naturally thinking in apocalyptic kind of terms. His ministry is so disruptive and so unusual that he can't be just another run-of-the-mill prophet. In fact, it's been 400 years since a prophet graced the stage of history. 400 years since Malachi. But this prophet is so unusual that people naturally come to the conclusion that maybe he's even the long-awaited Messiah, if not the Messiah, the powerful prophet Elijah preceding the Lord's return in judgment, or the prophet Moses predicted would come to whom the people would listen. Someone greater even than Moses at Sinai. And John answers all those three questions, I am not. I'm not any of those. So they say, well, what do you say about yourself? What explains the following you have? What gives you the authority to preach as you do? I mean, they're witnessing the power of this man's ministry, but they're not so sure. They're not so sure it's legit. And whenever awakening or revival breaks out, this is always the question. Where is this actually from? In fact, they asked Jesus the same question years later. And he answered with a question. He says, I'll answer your question. By what authority do you do these things? If you'll answer my question. John the Baptist, was he from God or not? They had no further comment. Because they knew if they said he was from God, he would say, well, why didn't you believe him? 
But they knew if they said he wasn't from God, that they'd be in deep trouble with the people because everybody believed that John was from God. There's no other way to explain it. But what was John's answer? He says, I am, verse 23, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John was not sent out, approved by the leaders of the Jews. He was sent by God. His answer uses words from Isaiah 40, and when he utters them, he brings with them the momentous context of these words. Isaiah 40 and verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah's prophecy brings comfort from God to his people, promising their restoration and redemption from their sins. It's a restoration made possible by a royal visit from God himself, who will display his glory for all flesh to see. Isaiah foretells that someone in the wilderness will cry out for Israel to prepare the way, to build a highway for the divine visitation. That someone is John the Baptist. And Isaiah saw his ministry 700 years before it happened. John says... I am that voice that Isaiah foretold. And that meant that the royal visit of God himself is near. So get ready, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that was his message. It affected people from every stripe of society. It affected not just Jews, but Gentiles. I mean, Roman soldiers are getting right with God. John's life and ministry was not self-focused. He, he sees his own significance as centered in the message that he brings. The king is coming. I, I'm a voice. I'm just a messenger. This is the spirit of the prophets and of the apostles and of every true preacher of the word. They turn attention away from themselves to Jesus, the Savior King, they do not see themselves as great. They do not garner applause for themselves. They point people to Jesus and his glory. You know, God has not left the world without witness to who he is. He has not left the world without testimony to his love for mankind. The prophets... The apostles, the church made up of saints as it belonged to Jesus, are testifying everywhere. We are a voice. We're telling you about Jesus. 
This is the mission that God gave all His followers, not just prophets and apostles. There were 500 gathered when He ascended to heaven, and to them He gave the great commission to make disciples, to make followers and learners of all ethnicities, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that He had commanded them. We are to be a voice turning hearts toward this Jesus, God the Son, who as man and human flesh revealed God to us and in so doing brings us the comfort for which we sinners long, the comfort of sins white clean, the comfort of a heavenly Father that will welcome you home if you'll receive Jesus. What about your life would cause observers to ask what makes you different? Now, I don't expect anybody to come up and and say to you, are you the Messiah? Now, I have seen people that acted like they thought they were. But, But is there enough, is there enough God influence in your life that people really can't figure you out apart from him. And who are the persons that you are pointing to Jesus? Like, is is your life about a lot of, I mean, is your life about just building your business or rearing your family or, or building up your bank account or having influence or power, or are you a voice, a voice that whether you're whispering or shouting, you're, you're pointing people to Jesus. You're saying, no, I'm, I'm not great. He is. And my function on the earth is to show that greatness to others. So in what ways do you make much of Christ? I mean, think about it. Think, I mean, just think practically. How, how often does his name come up in your conversation? How often are your motivations driven by what you know about him and what his will for you? Teach them to observe all things he commanded. In what ways do you make much of Christ? And then ultimately we come to this question for all of us, and we, we have to answer this question Sometime in our life, what have you done with Jesus? Do you actually know him? Because I guarantee you, he knows you. But, but will, does, does he know you as one of his own? Now, you can answer with all kinds of philosophical speculation and cultural mantras and pseudo-intellectual achievements. All of those will crumble in the presence of his majesty. And no excuse will do. You, you may try to run from Jesus. You may try to avoid dealing with him, but he, he will deal with you. God the Father, according to John chapter 5, has given to the Son judgment, the authority to judge all people. He has also given to him the authority to give them life 
that will raise them from the grave. So Jesus can be your judge, or Jesus can be your great Savior that will rescue you even from death itself. But you cannot avoid Jesus any more than you can avoid God himself. His incarnation was observed. Those who knew him said, we have seen his glory. And those people were affected by that. They received grace and truth from him. Of his fullness we have all received. And they gave testimony. I am a voice. May that be the testimony of our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your Son, you would have it do its mighty work in us. May the seed of God's Word bear fruit in our lives. Lord, make us more and more like Jesus. Keep our eyes on Him. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.